As we begin our new series, This Is Your Life, a study in the letter to the Ephesians, we begin firstly by looking what happened in Ephesus, what was going on in Ephesus and the surrounding regions, and doing so will help us with the context of this letter as we study it together over the next few weeks. Of course, This Is Your Life was a TV show where a guest was surprised and they were taken to a seat and guided through their life using a red book, a scrapbook, if you like, of moments in their life, where they were born or brought up, maybe with a few pictures thrown in there, their accomplishments, and then during different moments of their life, they would bring out special guests, maybe people they hadn't seen in years or family members from significant moments in their life. They look back at these moments where you could say that their life was changed, whether it was their first training session in a gym or the first play that they were involved in, to when they became world champion or got that part in that movie or play, moments that changed their life, moments that meant they could no longer live the way they'd done so before because life was going to be totally different for them from that point onwards. And we trust that as we walk through Ephesians together, we look at what our lives mean now. Not that we are world champions or famous actors, but that our lives have been transformed by Jesus. And because we are in Christ, trusting in Christ, our lives are totally changed forever. This is your life. Trusting in Jesus alone will result in us living distinctive lives for him. Trusting in Jesus alone changes everything for us today and as we will see in Acts 19 in Ephesus. Trusting in Jesus alone means our lives will be changed and will impact the society. But what about this city of Ephesus? Well, Ephesus was the capital city of the Roman region of Asia in the west of Turkey, we would call it today. An incredibly powerful city. It was a rich and cosmopolitan, and it was the main city in Asia because it had the, the, the main port, and then it would have roads that connected to outlying towns and villages. And in Ephesus, in Paul's day, you would find one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. You would find the temple of Artemis, or Diana, and this was the religion that was famed in all of the world, but famed in Ephesus particularly. This huge temple, of which remains a bit of a column or two, was massive. It was four times larger than the Parthenon at Athens, bigger than a football pitch with 60-foot-tall white pillars, columns, all the way around, 127 of those. It was truly a magnificent, beautiful, and majestic temple that people came to see. There was a little bit of tourism even in those days. And within the temple, there was an image of Artemis, or many different images, but one that fell from heaven, as we see in Acts 19, which we'll come back to. A magnificent ancient city where there remains some of the New Testament Ephesus today in the World Heritage Site. And part of that World Heritage Site includes this amphitheater, which would hold up to 25,000 people so Ephesus was 
hugely significant in the empire, the third largest city, the capital of Asia, a thriving commercial center and bustling port, and a city of a population with about a quarter of a million people. So that is Ephesus. This is where Paul goes, and this is the region to where Paul writes in his letter. But what about the history of God's word in Ephesus? Well, in Acts 16, we have Paul isn't given entry into Asia. We learn that Paul has been kept by the Spirit to preach in Asia, which obviously includes Ephesus. They are kept by the Spirit from traveling to Asia, and then Paul has a vision to go to Macedonia instead. But on Paul's return trip from that journey, he has a layover in Ephesians in chapter 18. He goes in for a short time, teaches on the, in the synagogue, and promising his return if God wills it. Paul firmly believed in God's guidance and sovereignty, and he leaves his friends Aquila and Priscilla there. This gives us helpful context, because Paul will return in 19 verse 1, but also in the last part of Acts 18, Apollos, this other man, preaches. That is God's word and Ephesus. Paul tried to go there, wasn't able to. He has a layover, then he's able to preach. And Apollos preaches in between. We turn now to Acts 19, where we see that we follow Jesus with our lives. And when we follow Jesus, our lives will be changed and will impact others around us. Trusting in Jesus alone changes everything. So firstly, uh, this morning as we look at Acts 19, our first point, Jesus divides people. So Paul has previously dropped into Ephesus and now has returned, but in between we have Apollos preaching. And in the last number of verses of chapter 18, we're introduced to this man, Apollos, an intelligent man from Alexandria in Egypt. And what he has is he has a passion for Jesus, a passion for sharing Jesus from Old Testament scripture showing that Jesus is the Messiah. Luke tells us that he had a thorough knowledge. He spoke with great fervor. He spoke accurately about Jesus and boldly, but Aquila and Priscilla had to fill in some gaps for him. So Apollos is corrected. It appears he knew about the baptism of John, but he needed to be corrected. This new baptism included the Spirit. Apollos maybe didn't know about the great commission to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we read in the tail end of Acts 18 that Aquila and Priscilla, they just take Apollos aside and teach him. They don't publicly confront him or they do it, don't do it with anger, but they invite him home to explain. And then Apollos in verse 27 is able to go and continue his ministry in a new way. He has a greater understanding. And as Apollos left Ephesians to continue on his mission, Paul arrives into this magnificent city, and he meets these people, these men. And whenever Paul has his conversation, he recognizes that something isn't quite right. They know about the Father sending the Son, but maybe through careful questioning or listening to what they're saying, Paul knows something isn't quite right. And then we read in those verses that these 12 men, in verse 7, came to faith. 
these were 12 nearly Christians, but then Apollos' disciples become Christians. In verse 7, there's 12 men in all. What should we make of verse 6 here in Acts 19 when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied? These were signs experienced by believers in Ephesus and also in Samaria. They were visible and public indicators that they had the Spirit. It isn't a universal pattern, Acts. The norm, as we will see, is repentance and faith in Jesus. It truly was extraordinary experience for them. Not to be expected in these days. It wasn't normal or usual. And these men, they clearly, these 12 men, clearly accept Jesus. And then we read on as Paul enters the synagogue. He teaches there for about three months. He's trying to persuade the Jews about the kingdom of God. And then after three months or so, they, he goes to a lecture hall to daily preach the word. And in this way, the last part of verse 10, we learn that all the Greeks and Jews who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Everybody ended up hearing because of Paul's preaching in the lecture hall. You see, in those first 10 verses or so, we see very clearly that some accept Jesus and others reject Jesus. Jesus divides people. It is the case in Ephesus in Acts 19, and it is in the case in Mid-Ulster in 2020. Jesus divides people. Of course, people can be divided on many different things or issues. In politics, they talk about polarization and left and right. In America, they talk about the great American divide. Of course, you can be divided on superficial things. Whenever you make a cup of tea, do you put the milk in the cup first or is the tea going first? Is it rich or poor, north or south? There are many different things that divide people, but in reality, they are all superficial because, well, Jesus really divides people. He is a servant you love, or a somebody you hate. Paul, in his teaching of Jesus, shows that he is to be a savior, to be loved. He begins in the synagogue, and you see that people are divided on it. They become obstinate. They refuse to believe. They publicly malign the way. They publicly mocked, laughed, scorned the way. The way being the faith of, in Jesus Christ for salvation. And then Paul moves into this city, the city hall. Paul, as he worked in Ephesus, we're told that in chapter 20, that he used his hands to provide for his own needs. He likely took time off during the siesta time between 11 and 4, as tradition has it, and he publicly taught during those hours of the day. And it was in those times Paul had the opportunity to evangelize to Greek and Jew. It's Paul's pattern that allows the word of the Lord to spread throughout all of Asia. For those who heard, some believe, some accept Jesus, and others reject Jesus. Some of them maybe listened to Paul for months in the synagogue and never went back. Some maybe kept going back to hear Paul. Some of you have heard the word of the Lord over many years, and others are maybe only watching over these weeks in lockdown. Wherever you are, whoever you are, someone who has never missed church 
or someone who is just beginning to find out about Jesus in church. First, you're always welcome, but the question for all of us about Jesus is, do you accept Jesus or reject Jesus? Reject the way, as Luke calls it, the way of salvation to repent of our sin and follow Jesus, to no longer be on our way in our old life and path, but to follow Jesus' way, which is the way of salvation and life. Jesus divides people, a saviour you love or a somebody you hate. I'm not sure about you, whenever you read Acts 19 and other portions of it, it might seem really intimidating to go to a massive city or to a small town or village to explain God's word. And that's exactly what Paul does in Ephesus. He mainly preaches the word, not particularly flashy or showy, he uses God's word. Why? Because God's word brings about transformation. Jesus divides people. So keep going, explaining to family and friends, because we see, secondly, that Jesus changes people. We have this extraordinary, out-of-the-norm Christian ministry happening here before us in verses 11 and 12. God is doing extraordinary miracles through Paul, the people, we're told, are even trying to take handkerchiefs that Paul had touched and bringing them to the sick. See, the city of Ephesus is steeped in magic, in superstition, in idolatry. And God, by his grace, doesn't he kindly show the people of Ephesus that he has sovereign power over all things? He displays his grace in a way that would get their attention and draw them to Jesus. It's the name of Jesus that changes people and they're healthier in verses 11 and 12. God through Paul healed many people. Evil spirits left them. But just like today, where there's false teachers who manipulate others with relics and with healing handkerchiefs, we see in Ephesus that the Jews were hoping to ride along on Paul's coattails. These people are changed by the name of Jesus. But we also see that hypocrites are exposed. Verses 13 to 16. Some Jews see what Paul is doing in the name of Jesus, so they try to mim mimic Paul. In verse 13, Luke tells us they tried to invoke the name of Jesus. The seven sons of Sceva, the high priest sons, were part of this, and they are exposed. They come to this man, and the evil spirit knows that they aren't genuine believers. They do not know Jesus. They do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them like a true believer. So they are not recognized and are overpowered. In verse 16, it's the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. All seven. And all seven leave with three Bs. They leave beaten, bleeding, and in their birthday suit. These sons of Sceva are exposed to be hypocrites exposed to be fakes. They did not know the way. They did not know the name of Jesus as Savior, but they recognized Jesus as maybe someone to be cast in on. They were not serving Jesus as they implied, but serving themselves. Are you serving Jesus or are you using Jesus as a front to serve yourself? Do you serve Jesus so that others might know that you serve? 
Serve Jesus for Jesus' glory. Serve Jesus for his glory. Because could you be exposed? Could you be asked, who are you? Jesus in Luke's gospel in the, the narrow door says, well, I don't know you. Will Jesus say that to you? Serve Jesus for Jesus' glory. We should never misuse the name of Jesus or saying that we are serving Jesus when we are really serving ourselves. Otherwise, we are hypocrites and we will be exposed. But this remarkable event of these men beating, bleeding, and naked, it results in people having seen that and heard about it. People profess and confess Jesus. We're told that many people believed and openly confessed their evil deeds. Isn't that an incredible response to the hypocrites exposed? That Jesus really and truly is the name to be honored? Trusting in Jesus means that we profess faith in him, but also confess our sins. We repent, we turn around from our old sinful ways, and that's exactly what the people do here. Jesus changes people. An amazing response to the gospel, to Jesus. Not just in healing and removing evil spirits, but Jesus changes people's hearts. They have a new love. Not for sorcery or Artemis or magic, but for Jesus. Whenever people profess and confess, they just don't stop as if it's a one-time thing and go on about their daily life. No. Why not? Because Jesus genuinely, really changes people. And these people seriously follow Jesus. These people seriously follow Jesus. Look at verse 19. A number who had practiced sorceries brought their souls and burned them publicly. And the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And that is about a day's wages. So 50,000 days of work worth of books burnt. They burnt it all. Anything that linked them to their previous life, they burned it so they would not dabble in it again and that others would not use it. They turn around a 180 to follow Jesus. During the Reformation, there's a picture of Zurich on one of those slides. And there's a picture of iconoclasm where they stripped the the churches, the chapels from their idols, and they burned them so that people would not be able, not be tempted to look to those idols for salvation, but to look to Jesus. They wanted to rid everyone of that old way to follow Jesus, to go back to what it was always supposed to be. And here in Ephesus, these people are burning all their idols, their books, in true, genuine repentance, and they turn to Jesus. And we're told whenever these people seriously follow Jesus, the word of the Lord spread and spread. It was a public demonstration that they no longer followed their old way, but the way of Jesus. They were leaving behind things that were acceptable in their culture. And what does this teach us? What does the burning of their books teach us today? What does their repentance and confession teach us? Well, surely we should be seriously following Jesus too. They burned their idols and evil books. They are destroyed. And what do we need to burn? 
What idols do we need to destroy? What is it that you have not left behind in your Christian life? How much evil or filth goes on or is watched under our roof? What books are read? What movies are watched? Surely Christians today need to seriously follow Jesus so the word of the Lord would spread and spread. We must be removing books, images, charms, games, whatever it might be, with its connection with evil and sin. Because what it is you are reading, what the characters are doing, what those reality stars are engaging in, Surely we should shun that, turn it away, burn that. You know, there be novels from our family bookshelves need to go into the fire, things that need to be boycotted. Jesus divides people. Jesus really changes people. And Jesus' people seriously follow him. People seriously follow Jesus. They profess faith in him. They confess their sins and repent. They turn away from it. And as we learn what Jesus does in our own hearts, we also learn that Jesus impacts our culture. God's word brings about transformation. So keep going, explaining to friends and family, because Jesus will impact the culture. Jesus has changed these people's lives so that they're leaving their old life behind. The Ephesus culture, the Roman culture, allowed all religions as long as you accepted all. But for Christians, it was to trust in Christ alone. And the second half of chapter 19, uh, the half that I read is incredible, isn't it? A city riot. And it's remarkable in another way too because Luke records it for us. Because if you scan through the book of Acts, there'll be many places where Jesus was proclaimed. Places where the Spirit moved in a remarkable way. People calling on the name of Jesus, trusting him, miracles. Paul preaching, other sermons, Paul's amazing conversion retold. And we come to one of the only parts of Acts where there is no sermon, no preaching, no miracles. So you must ask yourselves, why on earth does Luke tell us, Luke tell us about this riot? Well, let's see what happens. First thing that stands out for us is that there is bad business. There's bad business for all the silversmiths in the city. With this magnificent temple of Artemis, many people regularly bought statues of Artemis, maybe to go up to the temple to get blessed and bring home or to leave there, or maybe even as souvenirs. Because the Ephesians seem to be fascinated with evil demons, magic, and many statues of Artemis. Going to Ephesus was a bit like going to the Eiffel Tower or Disneyland where you have to buy the mini Eiffel Tower or you have to buy something with Mickey Mouse's ears on it. And Demetrius, he notices the decline in business. He notices that business is bad. And he gathers all these craftsmen together and he's putting the blame down squarely at Paul's feet about this preaching about Jesus. They were looking to keep making money and he summarizes Paul's message in verse 26, that man-made gods are no gods at all. Paul's preaching is threatening the idol-making business, its reputation and its money-making ability. He's saying that Paul is misleading people by proclaiming this. And then he, all, he says that we're going to lose money. We're going to 
lose all that we have, but also Artemis is going to be threatened. Our world-renowned Artemis, her glory is going to be snatched by this Paul's preaching. If this seriously takes hold, Demetrius says, we'll be out of business. And even worse than that, Artemis, she'll be discredited. She will not be hurled as a majestic name. Therefore, no one will want to come to Ephesus. And we'll definitely be out of business because Ephesus will be no more. Whenever Artemis gathers, or sorry, Demetrius gathers all these people, they are furious and they begin shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It is for Artemis and Ephesus. And as they whip up into a frenzy, we see a confused crowd or riot. They gather into this amphitheater shouting, dragging Gaius and Aristarchus to the front to speak. The assembly was in confusion. Some are shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not know why they were there. Paul's encouraged not to go. This must have been an incredibly hostile crowd, not knowing what might happen next. Life might have been in danger. These men are furious. But at the same time, Luke humorously tells us that many people did not know why they were there. They were shouting one thing and another. Back in 2016, in the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco, there was a piece of artwork only displayed for a few hours. And it had, a, obviously, the little bit of bio or information above it. And many people passed it and read it, and a crowd gathered around this piece of artwork. But the two lads involved couldn't believe their eyes because all they had done was set their glasses onto the floor. People started taking pictures, and maybe a crowd of 20 people were standing around several, on several occasions. Maybe a few stood around and others joined in. But this large crowd of business craftsmen, how many we don't know, we end up with this huge crowd filling the theater, maybe 25,000 people. And, well, not everyone is sure what's going on. So people are confused, chanting and shouting, the crowds don't know what they are there for. Do we see that today? I think we do. People just following along, shouting one thing and then another, just because they heard it from someone else, and everyone else seems to be joining them. But in the midst of this chaotic, confused crowd, we have the Jews putting forward Alexander to maybe speak and to distance themselves from Paul, but the uproar starts again, and for two hours... They chant Artemis. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But in the midst of their shouting, we have a calm clerk. He is able to quieten the crowd and speak, trying to bring some guidance and light into the situation. He reassures the Ephesians that Artemis will always remain. He reminds them that her image fell from the heavens. Possibly a meteoroid now in the place of the temple that looked like Artemis or sculpted to look like Artemis. And he says that Artemis is the guardian of Ephesus. Artemis is great, so Ephesus will be great. And he says, since these facts are undeniable, we can be sure that nothing can affect Ephesus. Nothing can be a threat to our city Little did he know that Jesus, that true image 
fallen from heaven, who came down to earth, would affect their great city. Jesus would damage their standing and reputation throughout the world. The calm clerk tells them not to do anything rash in case the Romans get hold of it and they change how they do things in Ephesus. But he speaks in verse 37, and it's quite interesting. He says that Paul, these men have not blasphemed Artemis. Paul's primary approach in his evangelism in Ephesus was not to point all that was wrong in the culture, but it was to lift up the name of Jesus. He could have easily blasphemed Artemis, but Paul and, uh, speaks Jesus. Demetrius and the city clerk point to what his message was, that it was simply Jesus. You see, Paul, although Jesus divided people, Paul preached Jesus and was persuasive. People believed in Jesus, their lives were changed by Jesus, and their lives were persuading. Because the word of the Lord grew and grew when they followed Jesus seriously. They lived for Jesus and they proclaimed Jesus. They weren't being ultra-negative about everything around them, but rather pointing people to the beauty of Christ. Jesus changes and impacts the culture the way the good news, the gospel of Jesus does that. The reason for the rat was because their lifestyle their words, their gatherings were persuasive. The gospel is not about what is wrong in our culture, but it is about life in Jesus. People will resist the gospel. People will be threatened by Jesus. But Jesus impacts the culture. As Jesus' followers, we should live distinctive lives that impact the culture around us, just like the people in Ephesus. What we buy, where we go, what we do, Yes, Christians will anger those who are not followers of Jesus. But only Jesus can give us true peace. Yet it is the cross that will cause havoc. Jesus impacts culture. Jesus impacts business and morals. Jesus exposes error and lies to show truth and life. These Christians in Ephesus, whatever the number, were impacting the city. They were no longer engaging with Artemis or other things that went along with that to the point where people noticed the silversmiths, the craftsmen were losing business. Paul's message was Jesus. Jesus is good news and only Jesus can change the culture. Only Jesus at work in us can change the culture. How do we impact our culture well, surely we, like the people of Ephesus, should be acting in such a way that it affects businesses and opening hours and sports clubs. Surely our lives should be so distinctly different from the culture it notices and is impacted by it. Jesus divides people, changes people, and impacts culture. Jesus, his serious followers, or his only followers, as Paul proclaims Jesus, Jesus will change the culture. Not endless debate of we are right and you're wrong, but Jesus and Jesus alone changes the culture. So this is your life. Trusting in Jesus alone changes everything. Your life and our culture. 
Paul in this missionary journey spends longer in Ephesus than any other city. Paul, by preaching Jesus, means that Jesus challenged their religion. Jesus challenged people's hearts and their culture. So as we begin this letter to the Ephesians, it can change your life. So pray about it. Trusting in Jesus will result in us living distinctive lives for him. As we will see in this letter to the Ephesians in our homes, in our work, and in Middlestar. And we do it all for Christ's glory alone. For all we have is Jesus, and we boast in him.